0: It truly is an absolute delight, privilege, honor, and joy to be here with you this weekend. Um, I remember last fall um, being in two different conversations, um, one with Josh and one with Julian, um, about the potential of spending some time together here in the, uh, in the Great North, well, at least that's what your basketball team says. We the North. You only have good grammar in Toronto, man. We the North. You know, okay. No, there's no other North. You are the North. Um, and so we were talking about getting together in the North. And uh, over, the, over the course of, of months, um, God's spirit led a conversation um, and developed a desire for us to spend this weekend together. Um, So thank you for the intentionality in planning this weekend. Uh, Guys, you probably already know this, um, but this weekend has been planned. It has been prayed over. Um, There is significant, intentional, pastoral, loving leadership going into the contours of a little over 24 hours together. Um, So that brotherly love um, thrives, So that souls of godly men flourish and so that you're better equipped to go back home from retreat, back to where you live, back to where you work, back to where you worship and be a little bit more amazed by Jesus, a little bit more conformed to his image, a little bit more, and this is the subject matter that we'll be considering this week, and a little bit more amazed at this grace. God longs to be with you. And I think the big overarching conviction level question that we'll be engaging with is this. God wants to be with me. Do I want to be with God? Josh mentioned um, that I have three children. The youngest is Silas. He's 13 now. That's mind-blowing. Um, but I remember when he was just about three years old and, um, he woke up one morning and he was acting out in his Superman pajamas. And the reason why he was acting out in his Superman pajamas because I act out in my Superman pajamas. (laughs) Uh, And one of the first things he would ask for in the morning during that season of life was he'd ask mom to put the detachable Velcro cape back on his outfit. You know, do your pajamas have detachable Velcro capes? I mean, like, and this is awesome. Like, to have the freedom to go to bed with a cape, you know, that's amazing. Those days are gone for half of you. Um, but it's, it's so he'd wake up and he had his cape put on. And in the moment he put the cape on, it's like he went through a transformation. He went from like groggy little Silas to like Superman. And he did something that morning, I'll never forget, that he had never done before acting out in his Superman pajamas. He he ran across the living room, jumped up on the fireplace hearth, pulled back his fist, and with all of his three-year-old might, he punched the brick wall. Exactly. You know what he found out in a moment? He wasn't the little man of steel, right? right? He wasn't. And you say, why would your son punch a brick wall. Some of the smart guys are thinking because he's your son, (laughs) right? No. Here's the reason why. He thought he was Superman. Isn't it true that we do what we do because we believe we are who we are? Identity drives activity. We do what we do because we believe we are who we are. Who are we, brothers, in Christ? There are so many mind-blowing, heart-thrilling realities about our identity in Christ. Isn't it amazing to know that in Christ we are identified as forgiven? That all of our sins as far as the east is from the west, have been separated from us because they've been absorbed by Christ in our place. We are no longer under our sin. We are freely forgiven in Jesus. Isn't that amazing? That's what's true about us tonight. In Christ, we are forgiven. In Christ, we are justified. Meaning this, we are no longer counted guilty. We are no longer condemned. We are now pronounced Righteous, declared righteous in Christ, forgiven, guilt removed, freely, fully justified in Christ. Isn't that amazing? We are redeemed in Christ. That's part of our identity in Jesus. We are no longer slaves to sin. We've been freed from our sin to live our lives for the glory of God. And the list could go on of all the things that are true about us because of who we are in Jesus that leads to activity and living that is a result of those amazing gospel identities. But here's one we want to consider this weekend. In Christ, we are reconciled. You were once far from God, alienated, separated, distant from the God who made you and sustains you, the God that you desperately need for life and breath and everything. You were not in relationship with him. In fact, you were his enemy. But now in Christ, the gap, the separation has been eliminated. For Christ suffered once for sin, 1 Peter 3, 15 the righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. My brothers, in Christ, you are reconciled. God has made a way for you to be near to him and for him to be near to you. Identity drives activity. And here's what we're hoping for this weekend. As we embrace our identity of being reconciled to God in Christ would that lead to the ongoing daily activity of drawing near to God, of enjoying that relationship, of benefiting from that relationship, and then sharing the amazing reality of that relationship with others who are at this moment presently separated from God. And so this weekend, let's, Let's live in the fullness of our gospel identity of being reconciled to God. Let's let's have our hearts stirred again, renewed in the reality that in Christ we are reconciled. Is that not good news? It's good news. Take your Bible and go to Psalm 63. Yeah. as we begin to explore the amazing benefits of being reconciled to God in Christ. Psalm 63, a psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. This is the word of God. O oh God, you are my God earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. And in your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. As with fat and rich food And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night for you have been my help. That is the word of God. May he add his blessing to its reading and teaching by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. Amen. 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 C.S. Lewis has famously said, if we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. Everyone in this room, everyone in this world is looking for satisfaction. It's true about you. It's true about me. It's it's true about everyone. And so we go hard after it. We look for it in people. We look for it in experiences. We look for it in our vocations. We look for it in possessions. Only to find, like the rock icon prophetic Mick Jagger once said, I can't get none. Can't get no satisfaction. What does that mean? That we try and we try and we try, but we don't find it. What it means is what C. S. Lewis argues. It means that if the if there's nothing in this world that can truly and ultimately satisfy our souls, then the most probable answer is that which will satisfy our souls cannot be found in this world. If nothing in this world brings me ultimate satisfaction, then the most probable answer is that I was made to be satisfied by something out of this world. Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century preacher, once said, There is a God-shaped void in every soul that can only be filled by him. That is the teaching of the Bible. God and God alone can satisfy the soul. And that's what this song is about. That's Psalm 63. This is a song about satisfaction. Uh, More rightly understood, this is a song about where true Ultimate, meaningful, long-lasting, enduring satisfaction is to be found. So the verses of this song reveal that ultimate satisfaction is not found in anyone or anything in this world. Ultimate satisfaction can only be found in the one who created the world. David writes this song rejoicing that he has found what he's looking for. And so he says it in verse five, my soul is satisfied. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be able to say with genuineness, my soul, the deepest, most inner part of me, the part of me that's the real me that you can't see, the part of me that only I know about and God knows about, deep down in there, right in there, I can say, I'm not looking for anything else. I'm satisfied. The reason why David wrote this song is because he wants you to be able to say that too. My soul is satisfied. You see, this is David's song, but this wasn't just for David. David wrote this song so that we would sing this song. So that we would lift up our voices and say, Oh God, you are my God. My soul is satisfied. My soul is satisfied. So here's the question I want to ask tonight. How do we get there? How do we get there? What is the pathway to the satisfied soul? How do we get to the place where we can truly say, like David, sing this song genuinely. My soul is satisfied. Well, let's go down this pathway that's laid before us in this psalm. Here's where it begins. It begins with owning God personally. Owning God personally. Oh, God you are my God. My God. Literally, Elohim, you are my Elohim. Elohim is the name for God that takes you to the very first verse in the Bible. In the beginning, Elohim created the heavens and the earth. It's the name for God that defines him, that describes him, that attributes to him the one who's created and sustains the entire universe. Elohim spoke the world into existence and holds that world together by the very word of his power. He speaks things into existence and keeps them existing because he alone Is Elohim. I mean, in the very same chapter of that first book of the Bible, we find a hint that this God, this Elohim, is quite complex. And we would even say, in theological terms, incomprehensible. Because although he's one God, he exists in a plurality of persons. We have this hinted at in verse 26 when. There is this Trinitarian holy huddle in talking about how to create the first man and first woman. Let us make man in our image. And so this begins a trail of evidence throughout the Bible that reveals God is triune. One God, three persons. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy spirit and it's this great and glorious creating and sustaining triune god that david has the audacity to claim and say you are mine oh triune god you are my triune God, and to incorporate what we understand in <clears throat> New Covenant language. Oh, Father, you're my Father. Oh, Jesus, you're my Redeemer. Oh, Spirit, you're my Helper. Oh, Elohim, you are my Elohim. All of this is packed into the opening line of this psalm as we understand this psalm in view of the totality of what's been revealed to us in the scriptures. David is gladly owning the triune God as his great and glorious creator and sustainer. And so here's, here's the point for us. Where does, where does the journey toward a satisfied soul begin? It begins like David, recognizing the jaw-dropping amazing reality that we can own God as ours and that he is not ashamed nor hesitant to own us as his oh God you are my God and the reason why we can own God as our God is because the father has first chosen to own us as his sons in Christ We have a relationship with God like David because like David, God pursued a relationship with us. Where does David's family line back up to? It begins with Abraham. God was looking for Abraham when Abraham wasn't looking for God. And God pursues him and brings him into a covenant relationship with him And makes him promises that he doesn't deserve. And gives him blessings that he could never earn. And then through him declares that he will bless all the nations through him. And then Abraham gives birth to Isaac. And Isaac to Jacob. And Jacob has 12 sons. And one of those sons is Judah. And then eventually we get David. And the reason why David is in this covenant relationship with God. Is because God in his mercy, God in his grace pursued a relationship with him. And the same is true for you. You have a relationship with God because God first pursued a relationship with you. The Father sent Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit to seek and to save the lost. And when Jesus left heaven and came to earth at the Father's commission, and lived the life you could not live, and died the death you deserved to die, and hung on the cross, the reason, and and, and rose from the dead, the reason why we today can say, oh God, you are my God, is because back then Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Christ has made the way for you to enter into this relationship with God the Father, and claim him as your God. Through the cross and resurrection of Jesus, you can, say, these, you can say these words and they can be real. They can be meaningful. They can be genuine. God, you are mine. That is grace. So let me ask you, are you claiming God as your own? This is where the pathway to a satisfied soul begins. It begins by owning God as your God, by, by, by claiming this relationship as real, as a real existing relationship in your life. I'm not asking you tonight, especially in this context, um, do you have this relationship with God Theologically, do you have this relationship with God based upon your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? I'm sure in this context, many, if not all, would say, yes, I am in relationship with God. I've put my hope and trust in Jesus. He's done for me what I cannot do for myself. He's lived the life I could not live. He's died the death I deserve to die. He's been raised from the dead for me. I've put my faith and trust in him. I'm forgiven all my sin. All my shame is covered. All my guilt is removed. I am reconciled to God. But what I'm asking is, is this relationship being owned by you in a functional reality on a regular basis? Do you wake up living in the reality that God is your God? Did you wake up this morning and swing your legs over the side of the bed and say, Father, you are my Father. Jesus, you are my Redeemer. Spirit, you are my Helper. Oh God, you are my God. Today, we're in this together. The pathway to a satisfied soul begins with not just theologically, but with a functional embracing of this relationship. Oh God, you are my God. Well, the journey towards the satisfied soul continues in this song. You say, Ian, we've just spent a lot of time on like two, four, six words, and there's a game on tonight. <laughs> okay, well, where is this going? There's a lot more words in this psalm. <laughs> this is foundational. Owning God as your God, owning Him personally, then leads to desiring Him desperately. The movement towards a satisfied soul begins with owning God personally, and then it moves into this realm of desiring God desperately. Look again at verse 1. David not only owns God, he not only identifies himself in relationship with with Elohim, he now describes his desire to encounter God in this relationship. He says, my soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. So the first thing David says here is that his desire for God is like a thirst. What do we most frequently, most frequently thirst for? Water. What do we know about water? Besides it's wet. We can't live without it. In short, if we don't have water, we will die. If you don't drink water, you will die. Without water, we can't function. Our strength will dry up. Our bodies will dehydrate. And we will eventually, our, our organs will shut down. Our body will stop functioning. Our hearts will stop beating. We'll die. Our bodies desperately need water for survival. So by saying he thirsts for God, he's saying here, I can't live without him. The same idea is captured when he says that his body faints or his body is hungry for God. He feels dry without God. He feels weak without God. He wants to be as close to God as possible because he realizes he cannot live without him. What's this mean? This desire he's expressing, I'm thirsty, I'm fainting, is an expression of desperation. He's desperate for God. He desires, he, his desire for God is like a man in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Maybe you've seen an old classic cartoon of the old guy wrapped up in rags, crawling on the desert floor. Water, water. Water. He's desperate. He's not saying donuts, <laughs> donuts, <laughs> donuts. <laughs> Why is he saying water, water, water? Because donuts are good, but I can't live without water. That's how David, I know this is maybe not the language we're most comfortable with. He felt desperate without God deep feeling. Is that how you feel about God? Are you desperate for him? Do you thirst for him because you know your soul will run dry without him? Do you hunger for him because you know you're weak without him? In other words, you cannot live, you cannot function for the purpose you were created and redeemed without repeated encounters of relationship with Elohim. Jesus said, I am living water. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Jesus is telling us, you should thirst for me and you should hunger for me because you cannot survive without me. And Jesus said, you say, survive how? What did Jesus say in John 15, verse 5? He said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. He that abides in me and I in him, the same will bring forth much fruit. For without me, you can do nothing. What is the nothing? Verse 4 Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. What's the nothing? There's not a single God magnifying thing we can do without Christ. That's the kind of desperation David's expressing in this song. I can't do a single thing I was created and redeemed to do without you. I can't do a blessed, God-magnifying thing without being relationally connected with you. Our desire for God begins with desperation for God. You can't live without him. The need for God to the soul is like the need for food and water to the body. So what do you do when you are thirsty for water? What do you do when you're hungry for food? You get something to drink. You get something to eat. What do you do when you desire God like this? You seek him. You pursue him. that is the next point on the pathway to the satisfied soul. We pursue God deliberately. Owning Owning him personally leads to desiring him desperately. And then that leads to pursuing him deliberately. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. He's saying, because I own you as my God, because I desire you as the one I need, I'm going to pursue you. I'm coming after you, God. And so there's nothing, remember, this is desperation. There's nothing casual about this pursuit, Um, there's nothing half hearted and flippant about this seeking. It's earnest. Earnestly I seek you is all one word in in the Hebrew, and it means to go after something deliberately and with intensity. And so here's an illustration. My my boys played uh, football, and I've coached um, one of our neighborhood teams, and I coached the particular team that my youngest son Silas was playing on, and minicamp for football season always starts the second to last week in August. And in Philadelphia, the second to the last week in August is still very, very hot. And so these kids are out there doing their drills, they're doing um, their calisthenics, and they're doing it in helmets, full pads, jerseys, because they gotta earn this, right? Um, so they're out there working really, really hard. They're sweating, they're panting, and then it's, it's amazing. It just happens all the time. As soon as the coach, the head coach, says, All right, water! What happens? These kids casually walk over to the water bottles. No. It's a mad dash for the water bottles. And they don't take these water bottles and pour them into cups and take little <laughs> sips of them. No, no, no. They are squirting these things in their helmets. They don't even take their helmets off. They're squirting them in their mouth. It's getting all over them. Getting all over their jersey. They're squirting them on one another. I mean, they're just... its they are desperate to get some water, right? There's nothing casual about their pursuit of that which will quench their thirst. That's this word. Earnestly, I seek you. They're sprinting after the water bottles. The idea here is David's like, God is my God. I can't live without him. I'm desperate for him. I gotta get to him. I gotta get to him. It's a, it's a sprinting after God. And so, what we're being called here to do is to, is to recognize that we're in relationship with Him, that we are desperately in need of Him, and because He's made Himself available to us, we need to beeline it for the presence of God. So, you say, How do we sprint to God? How did David earnestly seek Him? Look at verse 2 again. He says, I have looked upon you. I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. So in David's experience, the way he sprinted after God was by putting himself in the place where he could behold the power and glory of God. David pursued God's, a sight line of God's power and glory in the sanctuary, um, which would have been the place of worship for Israel at this time. Think tabernacle, there he saw God's power which is a reference to God's mighty deeds his activity his hand at work and saw his glory which is a reference to God's awesome character the way the the kind of stuff that Moses saw when he said show me your glory these are revelations of his character his mercy his love his grace his justice his righteousness his wisdom so Dave's like I need him I gotta get to him so I'm gonna Go to the place where I can see him. But it's not just in public spaces, sacred spaces like the sanctuary. Later on in the psalm in verse 6, David says he talks about seeing him and thinking of him as he laid on his bed at night. So the point isn't that there are particular places we need to physically go to see God. Rather, it's somewhere we must take our minds. It's somewhere we take our hearts whether it be in private or in public, wherever we are, whether it's in a place of obvious, objective worship like we've been doing tonight or in that private space on your bed when you're alone, wherever we are, public, private, or somewhere in between, what David is saying, I got to get my mind's eye, I got to get my heart into a position where I can behold his power and his glory. So where do we take our hearts to behold his power and glory? Well, this is not a question that the text specifically answers. But by virtue of the fact that this text exists, it's part of the answer. We're seeing it now. God reveals his power and glory through many means. One of the means is what's happening right now. We're beholding his power and glory where? In the word. The word of God reveals the glory of God. The word of God reveals the power of God. Where do you go? To get your mind's eye and your heart directed toward the mighty hand of God. Where do you go to get your mind's eye directed to the, the multi-faceted majesty of God's holiness? You go here. You go to the word. And as you go to the written word, you can be sure it will direct your attention to the living word. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his. Glory. You want to have your heart and your mind directed to the, to the matchless power and glory of God, go to the word. And when you go to the word of God, the written word, have your heart prepared to get a glance of the living word and be amazed at the power and glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So we see him in his word. But because we're away, there are many places we see this, and not just special revelation, we also see it in general revelation. So take it in, guys. There's not a lot of concrete around us. And you know what you know what's happening here at this retreat center? The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Behold him, behold his beauty, behold his power. He's responsible for all of this. The heavens are declaring the glory of God. Day by day, pours forth speech. Night by night, uttereth wisdom. All of God's creation is telling us something about the glory of God. So when you wake up tomorrow and you look up at the sun, don't stare directly at the sun, by the way. When you look up and you see the sun, I mean, imagine that sun having a voice maybe saying something like this. You think I'm bright. You think I'm radiant. I'm nothing compared to the one who made me like this. Look at all these trees. Imagine them having a voice. You think we're big. You think we're strong. You think we're immovable. We're nothing compared to the one who made us like this. Behold his power and glory in his world. The heavens are declaring it. Not just his world and nature, but his world around you. Look at you, you're made in the image of God. Each one uniquely created and crafted by God to give a, an appropriate representation of who he is and what he's like. Each one of you made in the image of God. As David even exclaimed in Psalm 139, I will praise you from fearfully and wonderfully made, marvelous are your works. My soul knows it very well. I mean David's saying all of that, not kind of in an Oprah Winfrey Dr. Phil kind of way, oh I'm so unique and wonderful. <laughs> But let's stop for a moment and take away that funny talk and say, God, really, you are unique and wonderful. You are a unique creation that points others to the one who made you in his image. So as we fellowship, as we enjoy life together, as we do paper, rock, scissors with our bodies and play basketball and eat food and have conversations and enjoy the grace of life together. We're doing that together with one another in a way that directs our attention to the power and the glory of God because we are his image bearers. Right? So we pursue him. We pursue him where we find him. We find him in his word. We find him in his world. We find him in his works. His hand is at work all around us. And this is the way we sprint after God. We direct our hearts and our minds to those means through which he displays his power and his glory. So the way we sprint after God is by positioning ourselves to see his power and glory as David did in the sanctuary and in the watches of the night. It's not about those particular places. It's to show us whether it's in public or in private. God can be seen. God can be beheld, God can be known, God can be enjoyed. And that's the next point. Um, Owning God personally leads to desiring God desperately. Desiring God desperately leads to pursuing him deliberately, and that leads to enjoying God deeply. Look at verse 3. David sees his power and his glory. He sees the glory of his love. And what does he say? Your steadfast love is better than life. Look at verse five. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. Look at verse 11. The king shall rejoice in God. What's going on here? David's telling us that owning God leads to desiring God and desiring God leads to pursuing God and pursuing God leads to enjoying God. That is the pathway to the satisfied soul. Like David says in verse three, when we pursue him and we find that being the object of his unending, never stopping love when we live in light of that love, when we get portraits of that love and experiences of that love, here's what we say. There's nothing in life better than being loved by God. Nothing. Not sin. Not sex. Not cars. Not houses. Not money. Not promotions. Nothing in life is better than being the object of God's chesed. Nothing is better than being loved by Elohim. Nothing is better than being cherished, provided for, protected, blessed by Jesus Christ. Nothing is better than being indwelled by, empowered by, gifted, and sent out by the Holy Spirit. Nothing is better than that. Do you believe that? Oh, I forget it, until I behold his power and his glory again. I forget it, until I open the word and I see it again. I forget it, until I look up and see the heavens and the stars and say, the one who made that is for me, not against me. There's nothing better than that. Amen? Satisfies the soul, brothers. Like David says in verse 5 when we pursue him, we will find that God satisfies our souls like really good food satisfies our stomach. He says, By soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. I mean, the most amazing spread imaginable. What's your favorite meal? I've already kind of hinted at what mine's been so far here in Toronto. Maple, iced, dipped donuts. That's actually a, that's really kind of honest. When I became a Christian in my teenage years through youth outreach to inner city street kids, which I was one of, um, very early on in my discipleship, our youth leader took a group of us on a missions trip to Nova Scotia, Canada, and we helped tear down a bunch of rundown cabins at a Christian camp called Forest Glen Bible Camp. Um, and it was there that I was introduced to the, for the first time to a Tim Hortons maple glazed donut, which we do not have in the States. And so it was like love at first taste. All right. And so for the rest of that trip, every Tim Hortons we could find, we stopped at and got one of those bad boys because we knew we were going back to Philly. And even though we have some good stuff in Philly, we don't have those things. Right? And so I kid you not, I told these guys, Um, They're like, so what do you want to do? Where do you want to go? What do you want to eat? I'm like, Tim Hortons. And you're like, dude, Tim Hortons is like a donut serving McDonald's, right? You know? Um, Oh, it satisfies me. (laughs) Don't judge. Don't judge. Just laugh. All right? Think of the things you love to eat. Not just eat to be sustained, but the things you really, really, really enjoy. David says, God is better. God is better. Look at verse 11. When we pursue him, we find that there's more joy. Oh, this is huge, guys. This is like almost like the, the big oomph of what the satisfaction truly means in the practical ups and downs of everyday life. In verse 11... David is indicating that when we pursue him, we find more joy in God himself than the best possible life circumstances. David's satisfaction was not found in ideal circumstances with God. David's satisfaction was found in having God regardless of his circumstances. You say, where do you get that from this text? Okay, you might be tempted to think, Well, it's easy for David to be satisfied. He's king of Israel. He has tons of money, killer palace, loyal subjects, hundreds of servants ready to do whatever he wants. It would be easy to be satisfied with God when you're living the Israeli dream. Right? (laughs) Right? And if that were David's circumstances when he wrote this psalm, that may be a valid beef. However, it's not the case. Did you notice the superscription to this psalm? A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. David isn't in the comforts of his palace. David is in the desert. You may have noticed at the end of this psalm, some dicey language that didn't seem to fit in with the rest of the psalm like those who seek to destroy my life shall go down to the depths of the earth they shall be given over to the power of the sword they shall be the portion for jackals you don't find jackals anywhere else in the Bible over here, I love it you know? <laughs> jackals are going to eat you up this is the sweet psalmist of Israel right? you know? jackals are going to eat you up what's going on here? David was in the wilderness, he says it, because people were seeking to destroy his life. And we know who was leading the charge. Oh, this is heavy. It was Absalom, his son. His own flesh and blood is hunting him down like, like a wild animal in the desert. The story's told in 2 Samuel 13 how Absalom planned a secret revolt to have David dethroned and put him to death so he could be the king. He loved power more than his father. So David's advisors catch word just before it's about to go down and so they all flee for their life into the wilderness of Judah. And it's there in the desert having lost everything. His throne, his money, his palace his position his influence and power his son it's there he says your love and kindness is better than life my soul is satisfied the king rejoices in god not my circumstances. My brothers, very often, we, we will not come to the conclusion that God and God alone can satisfy the soul until God and God alone is all we have. It's when we lose in life that we realize having Jesus is better than life low-level losses, as well as significant losses. When you guys put us out of the playoffs, that was a loss. I felt that. It's taken me since then to get over it and be here with you. Julian was trolling me on Twitter, giving me cyber pokes. I challenge you, To take it out on me out there on the court and see what goes down. And then you'll enter into the world of losses. But you'll still have Jesus, you'll be okay, okay? (laughs) Little losses, you know, minor frustrations, small, significant, small, seemingly insignificant frustrations in life. When we lose, the, even when we experience the small losses, the, the trivial losses, this isn't over-spiritualizing it. This isn't a Jesus juke. You know what really helped me get over the fact that my sports team lost? You know, I'm saved. I got Jesus. I'm serious. Life goes on. But then the serious losses: right. lost the job, got the bad diagnosis. She left me. I thought I was going to marry her. Didn't get the promotion. Those are heavy. I can't believe he passed away. He was alive yesterday. And he's not today. It's in those... Devastating losses that we're often brought to this place where we recognize God and God alone satisfies my soul because right now I feel like God and God alone is all I have. And in those moments, there's an odd comfort because God is your God. David lost it all, but he still felt like he had it all. Because he hasn't lost his covenant relationship with God. Now, isn't that what we're looking for, brothers? A love that lasts, a joy that doesn't fade, a delight that endures. We want a satisfaction that isn't based on the ups and downs of life's circumstances, we want incorruptible joy. And that's what God offers to us in Himself. And so when we pursue Him, we will enjoy Him. And that's not the end. The satisfied soul is not the end. It's what we want, but it's not the end. It's a means to a greater end. It's a means to a greater end. Because it's the satisfied soul that rejoices in God. Here's how it goes, guys. We own God personally, we desire Him desperately, we pursue Him deliberately, we enjoy Him deeply, and then we celebrate Him worshipfully. We get satisfaction, God gets the glory. Or, as John Piper says it, God is most glorified in me when I am most satisfied in him. Verse three, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips will praise you. Verse four, so I will bless you as long as I live, and in your name I'll lift up my hands. Verse five, my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. Verse 7, in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. I will praise you. I will sing to you. I will delight in you. I will celebrate you. I will both in my body and my soul make it clear. You are amazing. There's no one like you. And God is like, very good. Very good. We get what we long for satisfaction and God gets what he longs for and deserves glory. One last thought as we close this down. God is worshipped on the other side of the satisfied soul. But something else amazing happens. And again it's not explicit it's it's implicit. The fact that we have this psalm written for us handed down to us through David by the Spirit is a reminder that when we are satisfied in God, we not only celebrate him worshipfully, we share him missionally. We want everyone else to know. Let me tell you about the God who satisfies my soul. Let me, I'm going to write a song about God's love that got me through the darkest night of my soul when I was in the wilderness thinking that my son was going to kill me. Let me, let me. let me share that. That's good news. That's worthy of being shared. That in my worst moment, I was still satisfied because even though I'd lost seemingly everything, I still had everything because I hadn't lost God. You know what? That's, that's news worth sharing. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Through the giving of the son, you who are once separated from God have been brought back into a relationship with God so you can own him as your God. So you can encounter him intimately, personally, to the satisfying of your soul, to the glory of God. Don't we, shouldn't we want to bring others into that joy? And so David writes a song to bring others into that joy. We write songs, we have conversations, we tell others, we carry on the legacy of how the satisfied soul, the satisfied Christian becomes one of the most joy-filled, aggressive missionaries the world has ever seen. Don't you want that, guys? Oh, I want that. And we need lots of grace to go after it. So let's pray. Father, in your Son, we are reconciled. We once were far from you, under your wrath, enemies of God. But when your loving kindness appeared, you redeemed us. You saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to your mercy in Christ. You awakened us by your spirit. You opened our eyes to see that Jesus was our only hope to get back to you. And now here we are with you, Father. And we want to be near you. We want to know you. We want to bask in your love and your mercy and your grace. Jesus, we want to see your power and your glory. We, we, we never want to get over what you did to make this all possible. Give us sight lines of the cross. Help us to see your power and glory displayed through your life, death, and resurrection. Spirit, we, we need more of you. You're in us, but we also need you to empower us and fill us afresh. Their eyes would be opened, their hearts would be postured to behold the power and glory of the triune God day by day. Finding our souls satisfied like nothing in this world can satisfy. And I pray, God, that that would overflow into worship, that would overflow into mission, and we'd be the happiest people on this planet. Not because everything's going right but because we have you and you have us all because of Christ sealed to the end by your life-giving spirit. Father, this is the best news ever. Help us to see it and savor it this evening, tomorrow, next day, and the next day until we see you face to face. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.